Hello, I'm Ian Wielden, Senior Lecturer at Newcastle University and host of the Cultural Peeps podcast series. It's brilliant to be back with the first new episode in almost four years, and what better way to return than with an interview with the fabulous Esme Ward, Director of Manchester Museum at Manchester University. Esme is responsible for one of the largest university museum collections in the UK, with over four and a half million objects covering human cultures to natural history. In our conversation, Esme and I talk about her early experience of not initially being sure what she wanted to do in her career and how her first visit to a museum, Tate Britain, at the age of 19, seems to have been a turning point where she recalls initially experiencing both threshold anxiety and eye-opening excitement at the same time. Esme goes on to describe how, after university, she wrote to a number of leading gallery directors, introducing herself, describing her ethos for arts education and asking for a job. As a result of two of those letters, she found herself volunteering in Dulwich Picture Gallery and working at the V&A, initially as a Gallery Talks coordinator and then as the budget administrator for the learning team. Realising that she no longer wanted to live in London, Esme then relocated to Manchester, where she initially set herself up as a freelancer before landing a dream job at the Whitworth Gallery as an education officer come cultural producer. Over the next two decades, she led the expansion of the Whitworth's education team, eventually becoming a shared member of staff with Manchester Museum. Esme talks about the importance of mentoring throughout her career and how, after initially avoiding the Claw Fellowship training programme, she finally applied in 2016. This led to something of a career transformation, and after initially considering leaving museum and galleries altogether for a role within the environmental sector, she realised that to make the structural changes and to tackle some of the more problematic issues facing the museum sector, she would need to move into a leadership role. Following her return from the CLAW programme, the role of Director of Manchester Museum came up, where she has since led a major capital redevelopment project which reopened to the public in February of 2023. This conversation was recorded via Zoom in May 2023 and it is an edited version of a longer chat. There are links to the various projects and organisations that we talk about in the podcast notes so you can follow up anything you want to know more about there. Don't forget to like and subscribe through whatever podcast app or website you use so that you can receive future episodes and as ever if you have any questions or queries you can message me through Twitter, Facebook or Instagram or through the Cultural Peeps WordPress site. I'd really like to thank Esme for taking the time to talk so candidly about both her career path and the decision-making processes and I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Thank you very much for joining me today and for making some time out of your hugely busy schedule. If we could just start off by hearing a little bit about who you are and what it is that you do. Yeah, and it's great to uh, chat to you. So um, I'm Esme, um, Esme Ward, and I am a director of Manchester Museum at the University of Manchester, which tells you what my job title is, but I don't know it does a very good job of actually describing what I do um, because actually one of the things I love about this role is the breadth of what you do. Um, so I, uh, the museum is one of the largest university museums in the UK. Um, it has really wide-ranging collections, over four and a half million uh, 
items from both natural sciences and human cultures. Um, and I, uh, I am responsible for the care collectively of those collections, uh, but also all the staff and the volunteers. So we now have around 100 staff um, and uh, 200 and counting volunteers. Um, and we've just reopened. We reopened in February after a quite long uh, capital project to transform the museum as well as build new spaces. Um, and I suppose in a nutshell, what I do, well, there are sort of two things. The official version is that what I do is I, um, I am there to uh, provide the kind of strategic uh, both vision and care of the organisation and, and to mobilise all of its many assets around achieving our, our mission, which is to build a more sustainable world and understanding between cultures. Um, more simply, I think I'm really there to make sure that the museum becomes more widely and deeply loved um, both by our audiences, but also by partners, communities, and indeed the staff who work in them. So I have a, uh, a senior team. Um, uh, we have a, a whole range of other teams. And, and actually for me, quite a big part of my role actually is, is helping build the culture we want to work in. And for us in Manchester, that's a culture of collaboration. That's a culture which is really valuing and acknowledging diverse contributions across the piece, as well as really building relationships. So I do a lot of advocacy to really think about how the museum can help lead change, can help support fellow travellers, can be at the heart of things within the city and beyond. But then also that advocacy, if I'm doing it right, if we're doing it right, will unlock support in different forms. So um, I am responsible for the management of the budgets, for raising money. And actually a huge amount of my time goes into building philanthropy and support financially for the museum. Basically, creating the conditions for everyone to do their best work. So and I don't know if I've given a flavour, but that's, that's it in a nutshell. And I, I've been told by colleagues that um, I'm a very hands-on director. Um, I can see that. Um, uh, I think that is very much true. Um, I like getting stuck in. Um, I also love having really amazing colleagues with a lot of autonomy within their roles. And actually really learning from, from them and each other. So part of it, it, I often think actually what I'm doing is framing the questions and pushing us to be braver, to think bigger. You know, that, that's, that's part of that role, as well as supporting, hopefully, all of them to do the very best they can do. So is there such a thing as an average day for you? I know that's quite a difficult thing, probably, especially coming off such a big capital build project. I'm not sure there is, um, in the sense that um, one of the things I enjoy is the range. So today is a really good example. You know, I'm working from home. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you. Um, I'm uh, Later on, I'm speaking to someone um, in Hong Kong who's very interested in our work and might be uh, interested to explore supporting. I'm uh, doing uh, writing, some, trying to actually get some thoughts down on paper and do some writing. I'm preparing for the University Museum Group Conference 
that we have. Um, and I'm reading a report based on one of our collections. So it's, it's kind of, it's, oh, and first thing this morning, I was looking at one part of our capital project and the snagging that isn't working. So, you know, a little bit of me thinks it's, it's sort of all of those. And, and that sort of plays out across the week. I'm very much the figurehead of the, of the institution where it's useful to be that. So particularly in the last three months, I have, I have given more speeches and welcomes, uh, been at more events than, than I probably ever need again in a lifetime. But actually, it's important because um, I'm there representing uh, an institution and all of these brilliant people I work with in these collections and, and an endeavour to really make a difference in the city. And so part of my thing is I think my role is to really articulate that um, and, and to be that. So it is, it is a real mix. It's quite a wide role that you've got in terms of lots of different moving parts. But is this the kind of thing that you thought you would you would be doing when you were originally thinking about careers, say, perhaps when you were at school or when you were thinking about taking particular subjects at school? No, I, d I didn't even know museums really existed. I didn't even go into one till I was 19. I mean, I, I, I couldn't even conceive, really. So, so then, I mean, er pretty much every relative in my life is a teacher. Right. I don't think there are any exceptions. So it was sort of that DNA was I was thinking, oh, God, am I going to end up being a teacher like everyone else? Um, what I really wanted to do was I wanted to be a journalist because um, I, I was really interested in how you tell stories. There might be a connection there. Yeah, and uh, so um, so actually, that's where originally I thought, oh, this is, is this where I want to go? Um, and I ended up I was quite good at French. So I, um, I did very, very badly in my O-levels. And I mean impressively, like pretty much failed all of them. So I, I got pushed back a year. I stayed a year and, and, and took GCSEs and then uh, thought, didn't quite know what to do for A-levels, but seemed to be good at French, did quite well in it, went to university to study French thought, oh, well, this is great. Got to university, realised I wasn't very good at French, actually. Um, I was in this, in this town in Somerset, but not so much when you get out in the wider world. And also, it didn't really make my heart, you know, beat faster. Um, so actually, what I realised was I wanted to, I was doing French history, and I was like, the history's interesting. Mm, cultural history's interesting. And eventually, it led me to museums. So at the age of 19, I went to a museum for the first time and suddenly, I, it, it sounds almost naff, but, but literally I remember thinking the world is bigger than I'd imagined. The potential to tell stories, to understand the past, to understand the present. Oh my God, it was a real light bulb moment for me. Um, but I knew that I didn't want to be a curator. I knew I wanted, I was fascinated in that encounter between people and the collections yeah. and I just kept thinking I've got to be in the middle of that so it was the teaching in that context you see the teaching had to get in um, the teaching in that context bringing those two sides of me together that was like an alchemy for me I was like oh yeah. this is it then can you remember which museum that was that you yeah, visited I can actually interestingly it was um it's now I'm old enough that it was it's now just Tate Britain Back in the day, it was Tate. And the reason I know so well is because I remember really clearly, I call it threshold anxiety. I remember being on those quite intimidating steps going up to Tate and walking in 
and feeling really conscious, looking around me, that everybody seemed to know what they were doing. <laughs> like, they all seemed to have a really clear sense of um, uh, what the rules were. But because I'd not been in, I didn't quite know. And I sort of just followed what other people were doing. And, and then I, I got in the hang of it. And I, I just, it, you know, immediately I walked into these different rooms, all this art everywhere. And that was it, just completely and utterly hooked. Um, yeah, quite, quite a moment. So the bit before that where you talked about being on a path to being a teacher, did you feel like you were a little bit on autopilot there? You, this was a kind of predetermined destiny for you because of family links to teaching? Yeah, maybe. I think all I knew is that I didn't want to teach in a classroom. Um, but I, I actually, I have such admiration for educators um, and I think I, I know, knew myself well enough to know that that, that is who I was and am, you know, I, like in, in everything. I used to line up teddies and give them lessons, for God's sake. You know, <laughs> it just, it's just, it's there. Um, and so actually, I, I, I don't want to sound like I was anti-teaching. I really wasn't. I, I wanted to be with those children, young people teaching but not in the classroom environment. Yeah. I was interested in what happens beyond the curriculum. Yeah. And I think that's because, you know, I grew up with two teachers, both of whom were sick to death of the national curriculum. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I live with that. So in a way, I think it was more of bringing those worlds together. I, d I didn't feel like, oh, yeah, this is it. There's not really a choice. It was more, I don't quite want to do it in the same mould. So when you were... At university, for example, were you doing extracurricular stuff there? Were you, were you the kind of student that was doing lots of other things as well as the programme, or were you just having a very nice time? I had a really good time. <laughs> <laughs> Not especially. I mean, I'll be honest, I, I look at students now and, you know, and I look back and I think, God, what was I doing? I was in London. I, I grew up in Somerset. I'd never been to London. I was really enjoying exploring London. I was exploring the museums every weekend. I was in a museum. Yeah. I was um, I was just living a London life. I was working in a god two bars or whatever just to pay for myself. You know yeah. that that was the reality. And I suppose once I started, I did an MA um, uh, in kind of revolutionary French revolutionary printmaking, bit niche, and uh, just for the love of it because I just fascinated in all of it. And that was the moment when I really started to do more. And then I started to just help out. I started to do some volunteering work um, in museums. I started to do a bit of teaching on the side in museums. That's where I did all of that work then. Yeah. But before that, no, I wasn't, um, I wasn't that organised, to be honest. And did you go straight on to do the MA from your undergraduate or was there a gap there? Yeah, no, I went straight into it because I'd, I'd, not, I'd never done um, history of art. So in my final year of my undergrad, I did one module in history of art and just thought, God, this is interesting. And I was absolutely, I'd got a kind of particular interest in um, very quite political. So I was really interested in the role of art in, in its propaganda, in political theory and culture. And then this MA, which sort of brought this interest and okay at language French in along with this moment of the French Revolution which just seemed to me extraordinary like it didn't it all begin there this is this is it was a massive shift and it brought all of that together and this was in the day when um, there were only three people 
on my MA. Wow. I mean, that is extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and it was a real, you know, for love of, of the subject. So um, now I look at it now, I think God, it was incredibly niche. I mean, who, you know, when have I used my French revolutionary printmaking and culture knowledge? But actually, it was this space just to really immerse yourself in a subject. And, and I think for me, I'm a very much a breadth person as you might have gathered. Um, I like spinning endless plates. Um, and actually part of it was to prove to myself that I could do the depth bit as well, the, the deep diving. All right, so you were conscious enough to be thinking about that at the time. Oh yeah, yeah, no, definitely. That I, I wanted to kind of immerse myself in subjects. I was toying, do I do a PhD? Do I think about this? Right. You know, and, and, and also, you know, I don't regret failing all those O-levels. It was a really good thing for me because actually it made me realise, it kicked me up the arse. It really made me realise I've got, I've got to work here. Yeah. Um, but if I find something I love, it doesn't feel like work. Oh, this is interesting. And <laughs> all of that work, you know, that really did feel like something I loved. So um, it was during that year I started to spend a lot more time in museums and galleries. And actually, I, I, I remember going to the National Gallery and observing a group of school children having a session with one of the educators. And I, I remember really clearly a little lad at the back in the session. They were, they were by Turner's fighting Temeraire, but, but this little lad at the back, something had caught his eye in the other room. And uh, he wasn't allowed to go and see what it was. And he was sort of swooped on into the next room. And it just really got me that moment. I remember being really annoyed and angry about it and thinking, well, when I'm doing a job like that, we've got to find a way to make room to follow people's interests. So actually, that's what really pushed me to then think about museum education a bit more. When you came to the end of the MA, what were you thinking in terms of next steps? It sounds like there was the potential of academia there somewhere in the background. Yeah, I think I, I think... I probably realised as I got towards the end of the MA that I didn't want to go down that route. Um, and I actually become really switched on with this idea of museum education. So when, when I see something, well, I'm, I'm quite a driven soul. Um, so I actually, um, I, I look back now, um, I, I wrote to, um, I think I wrote to about 15 museum directors of museums in London, because I knew I wanted to stay in London. Uh, and I wrote to all of them, basically introducing myself and saying, um, uh, give us a job. Um, uh, really, um, really interested in museum education. This is where I'm coming from. This is what I think needs to happen and evolve. How do I do it? How do I find the way through? What does it look like? Partly because I just didn't quite know. And um, I also, I remember the letter was quite cheeky. It was sort of um, uh, slightly criticising the way museum education was done at the time and saying there has to be another way. Um, and and if, you, if you give me a bit of a job, I'll help you find what that way is. Um, I mean, extraordinary. You know, I would love to receive a letter from someone like that now. Um, I mean, it, you know, slightly delusional, but hopefully in, in a good way. I, I did my homework, you know. I, I recognised that Dulwich Pitch Gallery was doing some amazing work back then, really phenomenal work, much more social impact and learning coming together. And I just thought, right, OK, this is really straightforward. I write to the director of Dulwich Pitch Gallery and their head of education. They look amazing. I just write to both of them. It's a shared letter. Let's see where that goes. 
and uh, various others. And I also wrote to David Anderson, who was at the V&A, um, because I was really conscious of the work the V&A had been doing. And um, actually, it, that's where I ended up in both of those institutions. Both of them amazingly responded to that letter. I think times have changed, but they did both respond. And I ended up volunteering at Dulwich, and I ended up applying for a job at um, uh, the V&A, which, uh, which I got. So what was, what was the job at the V&A? What was the title of the job? Oh, it was a great job. It was, um, it was Gallery Talks Coordinator. So basically, all the subject specialist interest groups out there, and I mean literally everything from like sugar crafting um, WIs through to historic reenactors, you name it, they all want to come to the V&A and have a talk by a specialist, which is usually a curator. Um, uh, but you've got to kind of match them. It was like a dating service. You match <laughs> them with the person. So it was an extraordinary way to get to know the V&A because, you know, I would sort of be like, oh, I need the, I need the specialist in Meissen to talk to the sugar crafting people. Um, yeah. It was a brilliant way. So it was coordinating those paid for specialist adult education groups who wanted to have those those talks and and I did that for about uh, 15 months uh, a year and and I loved it it was a great way to I used to just spend all my time getting lost in the V&A trying to find curators offices <laughs> in the basement <laughs> down down in the so the the Dulwich um, volunteering role what kind of work were you doing there uh, from the minute I went to Dulwich, I just uh, I just thought I'm I'm here for a while. Um, so what they were doing actually, again, it's a great first job. They were just celebrating. I think it was their ten year birthday as an education department, and it was to get to grips with their archive and try and make some sense of it and bring all of it together and help them tell their story. So basically, that's what I was doing. So with both of those roles, you know, very soon the Dulwich role actually evolved into more and I was doing a lot more teaching. I was working with artists, amazing art for the unemployed programme. And I think about nine months in, I became a paid um, education assistant. Um, But yeah, it was really, really great. And it was just a, there were so many fantastic people to learn from in both those institutions who were so generous with their time. When I was at the v it was just as David Anderson was starting to work on a commonwealth, you know, this real yeah, review yeah. of museum education. So I then shifted at the v to become the budget administrator. Um, fantastic job to have at the beginning of your career in museums. I'm really good with budgets and I put it down to that that I can read any budget line, you know, any any um, accountancy, and throw it at me, I'm happy. Um, actually, it was a brilliant job to have because it just gave me both the nice creative side of things, but also this really strong administrative base, yeah. um, which is just, I just feel it's held me in really good stead. So it's, that's quite an unusual job to move into so early on. You know, yeah. that's Was that through necessity that that happened or was that you looking for a particular opportunity? No, it just literally, I think there was a, we need a new budget administrator for in the education department at the V&A. Right. Is anyone interested? And everybody was slightly snotty about it. They were slightly like, ooh, why would we do that? Oh, no, no, that's not, you know, that's not where the glory lies. Um, whereas actually... <laughs> I sort of looked at it and thought, no, but actually, if you, if you pay attention to the budgets, I'm understanding all of the work going on in this department, not just the bit I'm involved yeah. in. 
like if you conceive of it not as the budget side of things but actually as an insight into the breadth of work and I was just curious to find out more about what happened. I'd hear about, you know, there was an amazing woman called Shireen Akbar who was doing incredible work with communities, could never actually get involved in any of that. Yeah. If you've got that budget role and you're supporting that, you sort of get to know a bit about everything. Yeah. So I think for me, there was always a, you know, a curiosity driving stuff. Um, and maybe that's a bit of post-hoc rationalisation, seeing it in those terms now. But at the time, I do remember thinking... This isn't glamorous, but I'm doing all this amazing creative work in Dulwich. Actually, it's a great balance yeah. to have the two side by side. You, you, so. You're sounding like a manager there <laughs> already. Yeah, maybe. I don't know whether it's that or whether it's just, uh, you know, the world of museums is really new to me. I just literally didn't know how it worked. <laughs> so part of it for me is I, I just want to know how things work. Yeah. I want to understand them. So, you know, I used to spend all my time thinking, why do we do that? I don't understand. That's a weird thing to do. Why do we do that? So part of it was just that, that questioning, really. I don't think it was any great, I'm going to think in a managerial way. I'm, I'm, I, I think it was more, uh, um, actually, there are these huge institutions. I don't really quite understand what they're for. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and, and I still think that's where I am. You know, that, that's been a big thing for me is just trying to work, work out what's it, what's it for? Yeah. Um, why do we have all of this material and, and these museums? Why do they exist? What are they, what are they about? So I think that was there from the minute I walked into Tate, actually. I think there was a, OK, what's going on? What's this about? And, and, and trying to think about what that might be. Yeah. So were you still at Dulwich when you took that, that second job at the V&A there? Yeah, And how, yeah. did those two run alongside each other for quite a while? Yeah, they did. They, um, uh, a couple of years, um, uh, nightmare. I lived yeah. in North London and yeah, I was working in, in South West London and South Lisa London. Um, I also did a bit of um, freelance work. So I, um, I remember, I think... I think both those jobs were part-time, but I did some freelance work with the Wallace Collection. I was doing some teaching on their galleries. Yeah. So there was a bit of a sense of the V&A that you, you kind of, you, got, you stay in your lane. You got stuck where you were. And, and nobody tells me to stay in my lane. That's not going to end well. There is no way I'm staying in a lane. So I remember, you know, I was doing budget administration, but I was also helping out on their art cart equivalents in Saturdays with the family programmes at weekend because I wanted to find out more. So, you know, I sort of think if you get that foot in the door, uh, it's there then for the taking, you know, get stuck in. So what came next? What happened after that? So it's all going really well. It's looking really positive and, you know, but actually the bit that's not going so well is London's... Um, London's doing my head in. Um, uh, London isn't really for me. Um, I miss nature and hills and walking. And um, I'd fallen in love with a man who also, uh, we used to go walking all the time. And he moved to Manchester. Um, and we'd had a year where we were living apart. And it was, it was, work was great, but everything else was rubbish. And I remember thinking, I'm going to have to move. Oh, God, I'm going to have to move. I'm going to have to head north. Um, my mum was from Manchester, so great to go to Manchester. Um, didn't know anyone. Didn't have any job to go to. Um, 
but just thought, I've got to do it. I mean, everybody at the B&A in Dulwich, they thought I was absolutely mad to give it all up, to go up to Manchester. But sometimes you've just, you've just got to do what you've got to do. So I did. Um, I, uh, I headed, headed north um, and I had a pretty tough uh, year or so freelancing. Um, I, did, I worked everywhere. I did everything. I was a, a pre-Raphaelite maiden on a bench in Bolton for a year. <laughs> what does that involve? <laughs> oh, God, it's the hair. I literally lay on this bench, and whenever a member of the public came in, it's next to a painting of a pre-Raphaelite maiden. When a member of the public came in, I would magically awake, and I'd tell them all about the painting, whether they wanted to know or not. <laughs> um, uh, I, um, I worked for the National Trust for a while. Um, uh, I worked at Manchester Art Gallery doing teaching. Basically, I, I did anything. I did a bit of editorial stuff. Um, I just did anything that helped pay the bills and, and got my foot in the door with all of these, you know, trying to navigate what was going on in the north. But then my dream job came up at the Whitworth Art Gallery, which is this gallery I'd seen. And I, I knew they didn't have an education officer. And I, I was really annoyed about it because I was like, you're a university gallery. So um, I, because I do this now, I wrote a letter <laughs> <laughs> um, to, to the director uh, saying, you know, it, it, why haven't you got one? And by the way, it should be me. Um, and he actually wrote me a letter back saying, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Um, and it wasn't the warmest response at all. Uh, but then the job came up um, uh, a couple of months later and uh, I applied. I didn't tell him that it was me who'd written the letter. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, thankfully, uh, very luckily, I, I got the job as the first education officer at the Whitworth. In Manchester. Did you tell him afterwards that you'd written that letter? I told him. Um, I told him it was me about ten years later. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> so, what was that job? What did that job look like? Oh, that job was amazing. So it was basically it was literally just me trying to do everything. Quite often, dropping balls left, right, and centre. Quite, quite, quite badly at times. But God, did I learn! It's a brilliant steep learning curve. So basically, it was setting up an education service for the Whitworth. Um, particularly for schools and families, that, would, that was it. So from, uh, and I was there for a long time. I was at the Whitworth for 18 years. You know, that is a child's life. Yeah. Um, uh, and so actually over that time, it just grew and grew and grew. And um, I, loved, I loved it because this play, the collection was extraordinary, fantastic colleagues, the university context, Manchester, all of these amazing communities, people, schools nearby. And so, yeah, it was literally developing, co-developing schools programming, family programming, uh, and just um, resources, you name it, whatever, whatever was needed. Were you the first uh, member of staff there in the, the education and learning team? And then you mm. built everything yeah. out from, from there. So how did, you, how did you go about that at the very beginning? So there was a very interesting thing when they appointed me, actually, that I wasn't called an educator. I was called an education officer, but the funding, very cleverly, was dependent on me being a cultural producer. And what that meant is that I gave other creatives work or I created the conditions for them to do work. Yeah. So actually it was brilliant. Sort of embedded within the approach was that it would set up a whole team of freelance creatives and together we would build the program. So from day one, there was all that kind of sense of collective endeavor. Yeah. It was brilliant. So I just um, essentially would just find artists 
who would come and help build what this program might be. So it sort of grew um, over time because that was the nature of the funding as well. And then, you know, you very soon you start to do things like, you know, I was really interested in who's not getting uh, who's not being reached by the kind of work we do? You know, special educational needs, there was hardly anything at that stage relating to them. It's like, well, actually, let's work with this amazing school. Let's develop resources with them. Oh, hang on a minute. We've got the hospital over the road. They've got a school's hospital service. What can we do? Yeah. And then that leads to arts and health work. Just, you know, just literally an evolution of all of those different areas. So it just grew and grew. And I, I, I enjoy fundraising. I enjoyed telling stories to funders, thinking about the impact we could have. So actually quite good at bringing the money in uh, and just starting to bring it in and build it, build it up, essentially. So you're adding more members to the actual permanent team there as well as the creative practitioners that you were yeah, facilitating yeah, opportunities for. Yeah, I think I can't remember what size it was by the time I left. But by the time I left, I think it was one of the biggest teams at the Whitworth, yeah. which is, is great, you know. So I, I guess at this stage, it's probably worth me asking a question about um, mentoring and potentially about any kind of additional training that you have. So have there been any other bits of mentoring or training that you've uh, undertaken during your career up to up to that stage? Yeah, I'm, I'm a massive fan of mentoring. I, I have a mentor. Um, uh, I actually have had different mentors for different different times. Actually, I'm not with somebody at the moment, but I've, I sort of use them in different ways. I mentor someone else. I also co-mentor or peer mentor. We have, uh, have somebody, we work together. So for me, that process is, I actually can't quite imagine not having that. Um, it's incredibly useful. Um, I also, though, for over a decade now, have worked with a phenomenal coach. And anybody who knows me well knows um, I'm, I'm very in touch with the land and nature. So I have an eco-psychologist. I'm very interested in eco-psychology. So she is a coach. She's got an eco-psychology background. So I work with her and that's more around us exploring impact in, uh, in museums, definitely, but also in, in the world. So um, that, that has grown over time. And in terms of training programmes and more, actually, I hadn't done a huge amount, but then I did a couple of things. So just as the Whitworth was doing this huge transformation to reopen, I did a couple of things that really shifted for me what I wanted to do. And I, about uh, 10 years ago, the museum, Manchester Museum and the Whitworth joined forces a little to share some key staff. And I was one of the staff who, having had a whole career in life pretty much solely in art museums, then started to work in a wider museum context. And from the minute I set foot in Manchester Museum, I loved it. And actually, I started to fall out of love with the art world and um, the egos. The, uh, there was some a veneer of inclusion sometimes. It, it, I really struggled with it. And so part of what I was thinking through was, I wanted to build my understanding of that world. And so I had amazing colleagues I worked with. But one of the things I did is I got a Claw Fellowship. And I got a Claw Fellowship. I'd been asked by um, Maria Belshaw, who was director of the Whitworth, and Nick Merriman, who was director of Manchester Museum. For about six years, they'd been saying to me, are you going to do a Claw Fellowship then? You should do one. You've really, that chance for a year to explore. And 
every year I'd come up with the excuse not to do it. I used to think it was a cult. Um, I used to, you know, I literally just sort of do a no, 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 not for me. Um, uh, and then the Whitworth opened and I thought, what am I so scared of? What, what's this about, actually? There's, there's something here where it makes me feel very vulnerable, all of this. And it was because I realised that if I did that, then things would really, really change. And then I realised, actually, no, I have to do that. Don't be ridiculous. Of course you have to do that. And by this stage, you know, I, my kids, so I'm, I'm, I'm 52 now. Uh, when I did Chloris, 45. Um, actually, I was sort of, I was really ready. And the reality is I just wasn't ready before. So I, I did this Claw Fellowship. And that year for me was a game changer. I actually did it initially thinking, do you know what? I might just leave museums. I'm not sure they're it. Because I was thinking about art museums. I was, I know, it may be wider museums, but actually I'm really interested in the environmental sector. I'm going to go and do that. I'm going to go and I'm going to work, I don't know, forestry, whatever it is. So I decided to do a small secondment in a forest <laughs> in the, uh, with a group. And I hated it. Absolutely hated it. It was brilliant because I thought, no, I don't want to do that. But I am really interested in ecological action, environmental action. But I want to do it in the museum context. Trump got elected and Brexit happened. And I thought, OK, here we go. Uh, it's about belonging, identity. Oh, museums, they be it. Yeah. And so it really made me refocus. And um, um, what I realised is actually what I wanted, um, I wanted to lead somewhere. And I'd spent so long absolutely convincing myself I didn't want to be a director. Uh, and then it was when I spent that year on Claw and I met lots of directors. I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, you're all making it up as you go along. <laughs> it's like, literally, there's no, there's no, like, safe with a key that somebody's not given me access to yeah. that says this is how you run a museum. It sounds ridiculous, but it was a real moment of revelation for me. You know, I think it's really interesting you saying before you didn't feel like you were quite ready for it. And then all of a sudden you met some people who, well, you had, it sounds like you had these two things going on. One, that you were thinking about potentially leaving the art museum side of the sector. And then the other thing, which is maybe you weren't ready to lead, but then finding out that everybody was just the same as you anyway and working it out as they go along, figuring out what it looked like as they did it. Yeah, and I think for me, you see, I would say I, I'd been leading for a long time, but it's that, because I do think leadership is at all levels in yeah. our institutions and, and often not acknowledged enough. I think the bit for me is, you know, there's a bit of impatience behind it as well. You know, you've been essentially at the chalk face um, or doing the work for a long time, you know, 20 years. Yeah. And you actually get to a point where, you know, I, I often use the phrase veneer of inclusion because for me, I was sort of like, oh, my God, we're doing it on our terms. We're selling a good story to the world. And I remember thinking, I don't, I want to be able to really think about whether we can make changes that I think need to happen yeah. in, in museums. And how do you do that? And I thought, I'm only ever going to be able to change a bit of an organisation. I love the Whitworth dearly. I think my role there, I think I made it a bit less cold. It's, you yeah, know, I'm, really I, yeah, actually, 
what I got really interested in is what's the systemic change that might emerge? What's the real structural shifts that we might make? And the reality is you do need to be in a role like the one I'm in. And then I also, when I did my Claw Fellowship, I looked at lots and lots of examples of modelling a different kind of leadership, one that acknowledges empathy, thinking about foregrounding, caring, compassion in your work. What does that look like? And in another bit of my life, I'm, I'm the co-chair of the Culture, Health and Wellbeing Alliance. And actually sort of running alongside this, but absolutely integral, I have for the last 15 years been really actively involved with public health and ageing work in my city. And for me, I've got really interested in what happens if I really bring those two worlds together in this role. What does that look like? And so many of the challenges facing museums, you know, restitution, future of curatorship, you know, all of these, all of these different elements, for me, I think they require that, that, that shift. Yeah. So that, that's why it sort of feels like it's a, feels like maybe I was meant to get here, but it just took a bit longer than maybe it does for some people. But that's fine. No, you know? it's, it's, it's really interesting that the thing that you steered away from or resented the claw thing was the thing that was the pivot point for you i know and did you Classic. did you do any placements as part of the claw i did i did it was great so i did my disastrous little mini forestry placement which was brilliant and i wouldn't change for the world yeah. because it made me realize what i didn't want to do but my main placement um i remember i didn't know quite where to go but I knew what I wanted to do. And um, I remember saying to um, Sue Hoyle, who ran Claw, saying, Sue, I'm not mucking around. I want to go where the money is and the power is, and I want to understand what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she was like, OK. Um, and, and so actually, I went to um, what was then called HLF, yep. um, or uh, NLHF, as it now is. But what I wanted to do and what I ended up doing there was really brilliant. Um, for me, absolutely fascinating. I wanted to look at a kind of a provocation to the Heritage Fund about how it could think about community heritage, the stories that come from communities, lived experience, valuing those. And it could do it through a series of really small micro-grants. And actually, you could have a different model. So you wouldn't force people to be spending hour and hours doing stupid application forms. I mean, this is about five, six years ago. Yep. And I worked in Barrow in Furness and, and just started thinking, actually, let's have a look at, could we just get, just, like, just give people money, trust them. They're yeah. amazing. Yep. See what emerges. And so that's what I did with them was I was looking at how you build stories around heritage that are more inclusive. And, and actually, I wasn't really looking at museums at all. But I was looking at the kind of work that I think certainly a museum like Manchester Museum needs to be really open to and could learn a huge amount from. What happened at the end of Claw there? How did that manifest itself into the shift that happened? Yeah, so this is where luck comes in, I think. So I'm getting towards the end of Claw. I've had this bit of a moment in Claw. I'm thinking, oh, gosh, OK. Oh, you idiot. You want to run somewhere. That's what's going on. OK. Oh, no. Where do you want to run? Oh, right. How does this work? How do you do this? Am I, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to move. Am I? How does that work? I've got teenage kids, you know, or, or living all of that. And um, 
actually slightly trying to come to terms with the fact that I was almost certainly going to have to leave Manchester, um, which is somewhere I love deeply and have worked for a very long time. And um, I literally, I was barely back from Claw. I think I was back for about two or three months when Nick Merriman, who was the director of Manchester Museum, just said to me, um, I've got a new role at the Horniman. And um, if you don't apply for my job, I won't speak to you again. <laughs> or the equivalent. You, po you possibly an answered one of the questions I was going to ask there. Were, were you actively talking to people about your desire to run somewhere at that point? Were you actually kind of saying this change has happened or were you internalising some of that? No, I don't think I was talking about it then. I think I was... I think I was um... Planning. Yeah, I think I yeah, I like planning. Um I think I was I think I was sort of scoping and thinking what what is this? What does it look like? What what could it be? Because actually going back to that Brett thing, you know, I'm not an archaeologist. I'm not a zoologist. Yeah. I'm not I'm not an, an 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 anything really. I'm I'm a, you know, I don't quite know what I am, but I'm I'm a I'm a, you know, not not a specialist background and I I do remember speaking to a couple of people's when the job was advertised at Manchester Museum and I know a couple of people have said to me oh it's such a shame that you haven't got um and I was then basically told all the reasons that this job probably meant I was ruled out before I'd even started you know it's a university museum you've not got a PhD um, it's a, a Manchester Museum and um, actually you aren't an archaeologist, a zoologist, a botanist, an entomologist, da, 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 da. you haven't got a curatorial background. I literally, and I remember thinking, that's so weird. I've literally just spent a year going all over the world, articulating and really thinking through what the future museums might be. Yeah. Why the hell wouldn't I go for this? Yeah in a city I love that I think is so ready for this. And actually this museum, which is extraordinary, could I think become what the city really needs it to be? I don't care what I've not got. Yeah. Why would I care what I've not got? I'm gonna think, I'm gonna focus on what I've got. And I, I think there's this real deficit model that we, particularly women, but that we often have when it comes to these roles rather than this sense of possibility and, and what we might have. Yeah. So for me, that was, that was actually, in a way, I, I didn't want to make any of that public because when I did mention it to a couple of people, that's yeah, what I got Yeah, I got an back. adverse response. <laughs> well, that must have been, when Nick saying that to you must have been hugely important then in terms of encouraging yeah. you, giving you the green light to, to kind of follow that through. Yeah, and I think there are lots of people who weren't at all surprised that I went no. for the role. And they were like, of course, and everybody knows how much I love Manchester Museum. I mean, it would have been weird if I hadn't. But, but actually, for me, there have always been some key people who really supported. And, and, and I don't necessarily mean they've always told you what you want to hear. In fact, they've often told you what you don't want to hear. Yeah. Or they've really challenged you. And, and, you know, Nick, huge generosity um, uh, but also a real desire for this museum to move forward. Yeah. So, yeah, mass massively important, actually. Were the changes in motion at the museum before you started? Were there, the, were there things at a foot there in terms of the, the major changes that were, that were coming? How did that work in terms of the timing of you starting that role? In a, in a way, it's, it's, a, it's a funny one at the museum because actually I was already at the museum 
So I was their head of learning and engagement yep. shared with the Whitworths. So, and although I went away for Claw and I did a secondment with public health in the city for six months, I was still there. So the things a director coming in might have to do around building trust and relationships, like literally people knew me, they knew they know the best of me, they knew the worst of me, you know, they know what you're getting. Um, so actually, in a way, I think it, it is all just an evolution of what was there. So, you know, There'd been some brilliant work led by Nick, led by um, Henry McGee, who was there at the time, around uh, becoming the world's first carbon literate museum and really, really thinking about this. Actually, why wouldn't you build on that? So now, yes, we are that, but we also run carbon literacy training for all the other museums in England. We literally have a top floor opened up to environmental charities that share our mission and vision, and we have a shared role with the Carbon Literacy Trust, you know. Yep. So in a way, it's not, it, for me, it was, it was almost just a unlocking what was already there. Yeah. Capital Project did exist, um, but it grew. Um, one, one of my colleagues told me that um, uh, I've got terrible mission creep, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, which I take as a compliment. And I think what that means is actually it, it grew in scope uh, and it wasn't just focused on a new entrance, an exhibition hall and a new gallery. It, it grew to encompass the museum. Um, but I think ultimately my role there has been around noticing all of that, around stopping things that don't feel right. So I'm a big, big believer in your gut, in, 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 you know, if you really hone in on your values and you've got that sense of shared work, you pay attention to what people aren't saying as much as to what they are. And I, I think, you know... <sighs> One of my colleagues said sometimes you, you help make people feel a bit braver about what they're doing. So for me, that's what our process has been, building that collective endeavour and ambition and being the person in the room who every now and then says, why, why can't we do that? Who, who says? What, 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 what if we did that? What's the worst that could happen? You know, just, just bringing that into the conversations rather than just keeping going down the path and doing what we've always done. Yeah. You know, you do what you've always done, you're going to get what you've always got. And, and, and maybe, not in everything, but in some things, we really don't need what we've always had. We need something different. So, yeah, just an evolution, I think. And obviously making that decision that you want to lead somewhere and then starting the role and then within quite a short period of time really you're kind of into capital projects there yeah, what yeah. How, how what did that feel like it felt a little bit like groundhog day because i'd cut i was really involved in the whitworth's capital project so although maria obviously was leading it i was intimately involved yeah. in in all of that and actually i i quite enjoy it. I mean bricks and mortar aren't really my thing um uh but but can do it quite enjoy it what i enjoy even more is working with brilliant people where it is their thing. So for me, the capital project isn't really about the bricks and mortar in any shape or form. It's what that transformation gave us to show a step change, to really make that shift. So it gives you the opportunity. It's like the vehicle to do things we wanted to do anyway, yeah. to tell new stories, to bring new people in, to open up the museum. And so that honing of what our mission is and the values that drive us, that was the first thing we did, not the bricks and mortar. Of course, we really focused in on the what do we want to achieve? What's the difference we want to make? 
And then actually, how does that play out in terms of the bricks and mortar? And then how do we actually do the designing? Oh, we don't design it, we co-design it. Because actually, it's about bringing lived experience to the heart. So I, I quite enjoy all of that. Um, I mean, it's, I wouldn't recommend doing a capital project during a global pandemic. Um, uh, and um, uh, I'm not going to pretend that it hasn't quite significantly aged me and several of my colleagues. Um, but also... It's a start, you know. I like, one of the weirdest things since we've reopened, actually, is sometimes people say to me, oh, you must be, you know, oh, God, you must be so relieved now it's over or now it's, now it's finished. And I, I understand what they're saying, but also, no, it's just started. That's the point. So that, yeah. you know, in a way, the work's just beginning. You have to figure out how those audiences will start to use the spaces, how they'll interact with things, where yeah. that feedback then leads to other things and, and how the yeah. building is used. Because I think my experience of, of, of any new buildings in that kind of context is however you think it's going to be designed, it gets used in a slightly different way and being responsive yeah. to that's critical. Yeah, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm not, I do not believe you build it and they will come. I believe you reap what you sow. And um, actually, you know, all of this for me is about museums understanding and learning how to build better relationships, literally all of it. Yes. Um, and, and so the, the bit, you know, there have been a few things that surprised me. So I have actually really enjoyed honing with several colleagues. What are our key messages? What are the stories we want to tell? How do we navigate this press and media thing? What does that look like? That's been brilliant, learning how to do all of that, hopefully in a way that really cuts through, yeah. has been great. And we didn't have any of that. We literally have been learning together how to do all of that. So in a way, for me, it's been this kind of collective growing in confidence, but also alongside that, a collective conversation about a bit more humility, um, curatorial humility, um, you know, and actually understanding the relationship between those two. So... Tristram Besterman, who was the director before Nick at Manchester Museum, wrote me an amazing letter um, uh, when I became director. Um, it was on my desk waiting for me on my first day. Uh, really beautiful letter. And um, in it, he because he'd worked on the Capital Project in the early 2000s, and in it he'd put a brilliant comment about um, it's really not about the building or the bricks and mortar. That bit's easy. It's about the people. Yeah. Just focus on the people. And for me, I absolutely agree. And, and one of the highlights for me on our reopening was um, I'd invited both Nick and Tristram to come to the reopening. And the three of us got the chance to have a bit of a chat just around how the museum's evolved. Because for me, that's, that's sort of the point. It's like shoulders of giant stuff. Do you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I do, yeah. So doing it in a way that feels very inclusive of everyone is is really really important so yeah i capital projects are great but i don't want another one yeah. now. The, the, people tend to go one of two ways with capital projects you either become yeah. a serial capital projector yeah or a... Not happening. <laughs> <laughs> so what does the future look like for for the museum and for the work that you're doing there wow so future um i do you know what's great? I don't quite know. Um, and that feels completely right. So I can tell you, you know, next year, 
uh, when it's our birthday. We, our next big show will be about wild and it's about rewilding, about the wild as a colonial construct and we're building relationships all over the world around wilding. I'm off to Australia oh, wow. in, later in the summer because we're working on an amazing cultural revegetation programme with Aboriginal communities built on the work we've been doing in Australia, returning collections. I guess what it looks like is more relationships. You know, when, when I was appointed, I remember saying, actually, my job here is to make this place more widely and deeply loved. Yeah. That's what I hope it looks like. So, you know, we've just recruited a social justice manager. Over the next five years, they will build relationships. We'll have all sorts of work I can't even conceive of or imagine now that will respond to need. We've got brilliant new staff across the piece. In a way, my thing is creating the conditions for everyone to do their best work. Yeah. That's it. And actually, while I have ideas and I might have thoughts about, oh, have you thought about working with this person or that person? That isn't what being a director is about for me. That isn't it. You're not going to end up with a, oh, I think we're doing this exhibition because the director wanted to do it. I've got no interest in that. Actually, what I'm interested in is uh, how is what we're doing as inclusive, imaginative and caring as it can be? Who are you working with? How have you opened up the process? Who else is involved? If our museum was at risk of closure, who would come out and fight for us? Yeah. Who, would, who would express their love and care and concern? Those are the bits for me. And, and actually, I really believe everything else follows. You'll get really good visitor figures. You'll get that kind of impact. You know, all of that will follow if you get those basics right. So I think it's just doing more and more of that. Um, and, and that doesn't necessarily mean with loads more people. It might mean in more depths. Yeah. Um, and certainly understanding the international work we do is absolutely at the heart of the museum's work. Um, we had a brilliant curator who's now freelance, fantastic guy called Stephen Welsh. And um, Stephen used to have this phrase, which I loved, which was the reality is that the people most closely connected to our collections are often the most distant and I really oh, hold yeah, that. Yeah, really nice. Yeah. Because um, actually, that means it's quite an interesting role to bring those collections and everything the museum is closer to them, closer to their hearts and their lives. That, that's, that's, that's a pretty good ambition, I think, for the next few years. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for your time and for taking okay. an, an hour and a bit out of your day. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Pleasure, pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud and Facebook using the handle Cultural Peeps. And if you want a bit more information about the Careers Pathway project or about any of the conversations or participants, then there's a project blog which is available at culturalpeeps.wordpress.com. 